0: What is good, everybody? Yo, I hope that y'all are having an amazing week. I am so glad to be finally back to catch y'all up. Me and my family got COVID a week before we were moving out of our house and selling our home, and we finally got moved into our new place. We're finally feeling better. And so now we can now we can really get the ball rolling. I'm so excited, and I want to apologize for not having an episode last week. There was just so much stuff going on and having to unpack and do all the things that come with buying and selling and moving and all of that stuff. So I want to thank y'all so much for still hanging with me and uh, being patient. And I am ready to hop into this. I'm so ready. And if y'all will remember the last episode where we went over Romans 14, we pointed out how Paul was reminding the Roman people to care for each other especially those who were not their same religious tradition. And the reason why is because there was bickering and fighting within the Roman church over matters of opinion. And because of this, they were not viewing themselves as one family or tribe, but rather two distinct groups. And a quick side note, the way that Paul is handling the situations in Romans 14 and 15, and the way that the, the two distinct groups are being painted, it honestly has a lot of similarities to the various denominations within the body of Christ. I saw this uh, the other day. So where we moved, there is a lot of churches, like just right down the road From where we moved. And we were driving down the road uh the last Sunday morning, and I saw two churches, literally, one on one side of the street, another on the other side of the street, completely separate denominations, but they all claim that Jesus is King. And it was just so odd to see that in the same the same block within within about a hundred feet of each other, there was followers of Christ who were separated not just because they needed extra space and an extra building and they were really under the same roof but they were they were actually separated because of the various beliefs over matters of opinion it was really mind-boggling and just that image really helped me understand what Paul was dealing with on on some level but what Paul does is he reminds them of their duty to reciprocate help, to give back when it comes to provision and support, because they're all one collective community. And within a collective community, every single person helps each other, no matter what. But he's going to continue onto the same line of thinking by qualifying his, his commands with the fact that Jesus not only came to save the Jews, But he also came to be a servant to the Gentiles as well. So we're going to be going through verses 8 through 13 in Romans chapter 15. Like we always do, we're going to read through it. And then we'll break it down verse by verse. So Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. All right. So to break this down, starting in verse eight, Paul says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Okay. so he came as a servant to the circumcised which would be the Jews. The Jews were circumcised. That was a part of um, their adherence to the Torah and being a part of the family of Abraham. So the circumcised here is referring to the Jews. So Paul tells us that Christ became a servant to the Jews in order to show that God is being true and in order to confirm and prove right the promises that God had made to the patriarchs so jesus was sent directly to the jews and if you look throughout the gospels you'll notice that jesus didn't directly preach to gentiles he was preaching to the jewish people and the question we might ask is well why because it was god's way of fulfilling his commitment to his chosen people the jews he did this in order to fully show them that their Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was true in all that it said regarding a future promise of a future king and a Messiah. Now, one contention that I have heard is that the only reason that as Christians today, we see Jesus or signs pointing to Jesus in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is because we kind of just, we implant Jesus into the Old Testament where he's really not supposed to be. They're saying that where we see Jesus is places where it's not really apparent or that's not how the ancient Jews would have understood it. And this line of thought has been used by some skeptics alongside other claims that, for instance, the Pharisees, That we read about in the Gospels, the Jewish leaders who knew their Hebrew Bible front and back very well, they'll point out that, well, the Pharisees, I mean, they knew the Bible, they knew the Old Testament better than anybody, and they didn't even see that Jesus was this Messiah, they didn't see it coming. So therefore, it couldn't have been clear in the Hebrew Bible that there was this Messiah in this appointed one that was going to be uh, freeing all people. And unfortunately for the skeptics who try and make this point, their argument falls flat. We have a scriptural example of the truth of the fact that although there may have been some Jewish people who wouldn't have seen the fact that there was going to be a coming Messiah, doesn't mean that that's how everyone interpreted it. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Because we're told that Simeon was a man from Jerusalem. And this was a man who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was a Jew who would have known and grown up reading the Hebrew Bible. He would have known the scriptures. So if Simeon, being Jewish, was able to see Jesus and look forward to a coming Messiah, and recognize that that this child that he's holding is the one, like he says, that would have been a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to God's people in Israel. If he was able to, from his knowledge of the Old Testament, see that Jesus was this Messiah who was fulfilling the prophecies that were foretold in the Hebrew Bible, then what excuse is there? for any other Jew at this time or the Pharisees or anyone else to miss it clearly the disciples and apostles who knew the scripture front and back were able to fit a a coming messiah in the flesh into their biblical framework even paul who is writing this letter who is saying that jesus came to prove that god's word is true even paul who was a pharisee himself was able after he, after Jesus revealed himself, was able to look and go, oh, yeah, you you know what? You're actually right. There are a ton of places within our Old Testament that was clearly pointing to Christ. So as Paul tells us here in verse 8, that one effect that Jesus had is that he proved these ancient texts to be true. He proved these, these prophecies of a coming Messiah, a coming leader, a coming deliverer, a, a coming king who was going to unite not only the Jews, but also all the people of the world, the Gentiles, together. And so we may ask, well, what are some of these ancient texts that might be referring to this? Well, the first one that we can look at is in Deuteronomy 18. Because a clear train of thought throughout the Old Testament is this theme for a coming prophet that's going to be like Moses, who's going to be able to deliver Israel. And in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So, according to Moses, God had a plan at some point in the future to raise up a prophet like Moses from among Israel. Now, what's interesting is when when you look at what Moses did, he delivered Israel from bondage. He delivered God's people from bondage. And through God, he made a new covenant with Israel. Who else came from Israel, a Jewish descent, and brought God's people out of slavery into freedom. Slavery from sin into freedom, into new life. Who else made a new covenant with God's people? Hmm. Jesus fits both the bills, and no other prophet in the entire Bible comes anywhere close. And according to the author of the ending of Deuteronomy, this prophet that Moses speaks of was not yet delivered to Israel in the time of Deuteronomy through Numbers and all of that. Look at this. Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. This is, uh, this is an author, most likely not Moses, even though it is traditionally believed that Moses was the author of the Torah. Uh, We at least know that for Deuteronomy 34, the ending of Deuteronomy, it couldn't be Moses that's writing this because it's writing about Moses' death and where he was buried and things that happened after Moses' lifetime. But nevertheless, it says this, There has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. So Deuteronomy itself clearly shows that this prophet that was going to be raised up, it wasn't one that was going to happen immediately. Because well after Moses's lifetime, the author is telling us, yeah, you remember that prophet that Moses was talking about? Back in chapter 18, the one that was going to be like him, that was going to come from the Jews and perform all these great things. yeah, we're uh, we're, we're writing this extra part of the Deuteronomy scroll uh, to let y'all know that that prophet hasn't showed up yet. <laughs> that prophet has not come yet. So it's still looking forward to this coming prophet, and this theme goes throughout the entire rest of the Hebrew Bible. Here's another text that that looks forward to a coming prophet, a coming Messiah or anointed one. This is in Psalm 2. It says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. is looking forward to a time when the Lord's anointed, or Messiah, will be given power over the nations, and those who will be blessed will be those who take refuge in him. Another one we could look at, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 through 6. He says, Behold, I will send you Elisha, The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi, the last book of the prophets looks towards a a coming prophet that will change the hearts of God's people. Now, what's interesting is this, is that this prophet is named Elisha. In Malachi's coming prophecy but look what Luke does in the gospel of Luke Luke depicts John the Baptist as this character or this coming prophet who will lead people to one who is greater and that will ultimately fulfill Malachi's prophecy in some sense look at this Luke chapter 1 verse 16 through 17 he's speaking about John here and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Almost almost word for word from Malachi. So Luke clearly sees John the Baptist In some way, as being this prophet that is foretold in Malachi 4, who will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the children to their fathers, all pointing towards the anointed Messiah, Jesus, that John will eventually announce. And a few others, I'm not going to read through because they're long, but a few others just off the top of my head that point to this coming anointed one, this coming Messiah is Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 53. That's a great one. But with all of these in mind, it's really hard to conclude that the Jewish believers in the time of Jesus, especially people like the Pharisees, would have had a zero framework for categorizing a Messiah or Jesus who claims to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. It was clear that That their rejection was not because they looked back at their Old Testament and was like, I don't see anywhere in here where it says that there's going to be a son of God and he's going to be the king of the Jews and he's the Messiah that's going to rule over the Jews. Like they, They can't point to that because it's very clear. We just looked at it where the Old Testament is pointing to this coming prophet, this coming Messiah, this coming anointed one who was going to deliver and mend the nations their rejection of Jesus wasn't because they misunderstood the scripture. It was because Jesus threatened the power and authority and status that they had. So, that was one consequence of the arrival of Jesus. The next one is what Paul says in verse 9. He says, Jesus came, did all this good stuff, in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So what Paul does here is he points to four texts in the Old Testament that shows this future hope of Gentiles recognizing and falling in line with God's ultimate authority. And the four places he quotes from is Psalm 18, verse 49, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Psalm 117, verse 1, and Isaiah 11, verse 10. And you may notice that in these four sections, if you go and look at these uh, quotations actually in the Old Testament, the people are never referred to as Gentiles. Rather, they're called peoples or nations. And this was their way at the time of referring to those who did not fall under Israelite heritage. And Paul's ultimate point, which refutes this skeptical claim that we talked about earlier, is that the Hebrew scripture was very clear and consistent regarding a future Messiah in hope that would fulfill God's promises and that it would reconcile the non-Israelite people in the world. And I think Paul's ultimate goal here is to point out like, hey, people in Rome, it's easy to get caught up in the ways that you as a Jew or as an Israelite were set apart from Gentiles. You had these food laws, you had these religious laws, you had uh, monotheism, one God that you served, ceremonial laws, you had all these holidays, this history, that's all great. But if you focus so much on what sets you apart, you overlook the fact that, that God was very clear in his word. Paul just pointed out four separate occasions that God's ultimate goal is to move towards reconciliation with the Gentiles. So if this is the case, then why why are you fighting? Paul's reminding the Jewish people of their own Bible, what they had studied their whole lives. He's saying, hey, I know that you guys are, are really just honing in on what makes you different and what sets you apart. But don't forget that God told us multiple times that he wants to unite everybody all under his authority and it's going to be glorious and it's going to be great so why why are we fighting why are we separating that us separating and us fighting is not helping the ultimate plan like god says when he says praise the lord all you gentiles or that the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will have hope. Why are you fighting against this plan that God ultimately wants to enact through Jesus? And knowing this, and knowing that the Jews would have understood these texts, really makes their enmity towards the Gentiles so odd. Because Paul, like I said, just lifts it off four of the many Old Testament texts that speak of Gentiles as becoming a part of God's family. Yet when you read interactions like we find in Matthew chapter 15, you kind of get a glimpse of how a lot of the Jewish people, and in this instance, the disciples, act towards Gentiles. This passage in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28 has been the center of some debate, and it's been the center of certain claims that, that Jesus um, treated a woman poorly and did all of this. And I think it's just a, a plain, flat-out misunderstanding of the context and the situation that is happening. Because Jesus is interacting with a Gentile woman, and she's crying after Jesus because she, she wants Jesus to desperately heal her daughter. And Jesus gives a peculiar response, but I truly do believe that the response that Jesus gives is an instructive response for his disciples, but also a response to test the woman's faith. But let's go ahead and read through it. It's in Matthew 15, verse 21 through 28, says this, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She is crying after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So what a lot of people like to instantly focus on is the fact that Jesus refers to her as a dog. He says, Hey, it's not right to take bread from my children the Jewish people, and give it to you dogs, referring to the Gentiles. And when we don't understand the context and his purpose behind the words, we can really misconstrue what Jesus was doing. So I want to point out a few things. Notice how in verse 23, the disciples get defensive of Jesus because the woman is begging him to help. And their response is not, hey, Jesus, look, man, hey, we should probably help her. She, you know, She's crying. She really needs help. Their response, seeing a Gentile woman, and they know that she's a Gentile because they're in the districts of Tyre and Sidon, and she came from that region. It, it's very clear that she would have been a Gentile because there would have been ethnic markers, uh, probably even accent markers, the way that she spoke. It would have been very clear to them that yeah, she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And you can see the disciples default reaction and view of interacting with this Gentile woman is they say, uh, Yo, send her away. She's crying after us. Like, who does she think she is? She, she's just making a scene. They They were literally getting annoyed at this Gentile woman because she was crying out to Jesus for help. And the way that Jesus responds, I think, is so clever because not only does it test the woman's faith to see if she will continue to pursue and chase after Jesus, even when he um, puts up some roadblocks, but also what it does, and I think more importantly, is it shows the disciples how ugly and hateful their view and their behavior towards this Gentile woman really is. When we read that Jesus called her a dog, and that led to having her begging on her knees for help. When we read that, we get taken aback. We're like, oh, dang, Jesus, don't you think that's kind of rough? Like, imagine the scene. Jesus says, no, sorry, I'm not going to take bread from my children and give it to a dog and she gets on her knees and starts crying out even more because her daughter needs help and she's begging him, she would have made herself look like a fool in this situation. And just reading it, we're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, what are you doing? This is kind of rough. So if we feel that way as this third-party reader, imagine how the disciples would have felt Seeing their own animosity and judgment play out in real time. Seeing that, seeing the way that they treated this Gentile woman actually play out and what it caused and the pain that it caused. That's why Jesus responded the way that he did. He was teaching the disciples that this is what your judgment and animosity towards the Gentiles looks like when you play it out. It's not pretty, it's not fair, and it makes you feel uncomfortable and terrible, doesn't it? And I highlight this because it shows how even though the disciples would have been aware of the Old Testament's inclusion and future acceptance of Gentiles, they they still ignored it and they still had a negative view towards this woman to the point where many Jewish people allowed their differences To overshadow God's word regarding Gentile. And all of this points back to Paul's original point that Jesus came to prove God's word to the Jews true, that God was going to send the Jews their Messiah, their anointed one that was going to rule them and that was going to free them, one that was going to be like Moses that brought them out of the slavery that they were in with sin. But also, he came for the Gentiles, also proving his word true, that he was going to bring the Gentiles into his family and he was going to be the one who ruled over the Gentiles and that they would be praising his name and that they would have hope in God. Paul's bringing all this back together to show the Roman people that because we now follow Jesus, there's no excuse for us to be separated, to be acting like distinct groups who have nothing to do with each other. What it should be doing is calling all of us to unity. And he finishes with verse 13 saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in